Okay, we are in a series, a sermon series in the book of Romans, and uh, today we come to a new section in Romans, uh, chapter 9 to 11 of Romans is a, a unique section in the book of Romans where uh, the Apostle Paul deals with the, I guess, a big question about the place of the Israelites in God's um, plan of salvation. And uh, that, that was a big issue, uh, particularly in Paul's day, because, uh, you know, the Messiah had come, come to his own people, and his own people, or well, many of his own people, uh, rejected him. And so it raised the question in a lot of people's minds, uh, had God failed in his plan? Uh, it's the very people who were actually looking forward to the salvation that was to come into the world in the Messiah, if the very people who are looking forward to it missed out, then you've got to wonder, did God fail? And so that's the big question that Paul takes three chapters to answer. And uh, when you've got three chapters in, in the book of Romans, that's a lot of material, okay, because it's very, very dense. Uh, so we're going to you know, get into that over the, the weeks to come. Uh, but the thing about it, if we just think Romans 9 to 11 is just dealing with kind of Jewish stuff, we're actually missing the point. Because when Paul answers this big question, he talks about how the gospel works. And so we learn just as much about salvation by grace as it applies to us, as it does to uh, any uh, person, you know, whatever their uh, background is. So there's, there's certainly a lot more to learn about um, the gospel in uh, these chapters. Okay, so we're looking at Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 13 today. So you've got your Bibles open, so let's um, hear God's word. <clears throat> I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and then to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it's not as though God, the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, this is the word of God. Uh, let's pray. We need uh, God's help to understand, so let's seek him. 
Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you uh, for your word and, and that we're able to affirm in that song that you are speaking uh, through your word, by your spirit. And so may we uh, listen to this passage, Father, and have, have a heart that recognises uh, you as the, the ultimate author of these words and so that we would listen to them not as, as if they were just the word of men, but rather the word of God. Uh, give us that conviction, Father, that what you say is true and that we can uh, stake our lives upon it. We also pray for understanding, Father, as we consider these this complex uh, section in the book of Romans. May you give us insight and uh, may you enlighten our minds so that we understand uh, what you're saying to us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the uh, theme of the book of Romans, as I've been uh, trying to remind you of regularly, is the gospel of God. Okay, Romans is all about the gospel. And the theme verse, which I'm afraid we may have um, forgotten about by now because I haven't been <clears throat> reminding you enough about it, but the theme verse is right back at the start in chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. And so for the last uh, eight chapters in Romans, we've been learning all about the gospel, you know, how it is that God saves people by sending his only son and how when we put our faith in Jesus, we're counted as righteous in Christ. Hey, that's the good news, the gospel. Uh, we've been learning all about it. But one of the questions that hasn't been answered at this point in Romans is if the gospel is so powerful, how come so many people hear it and yet nothing happens in their lives? How can people hear this powerful news of salvation and, and still remain unchanged? I mean, it's a question that surely confronts us. You know, we live in Australia and when we look out, you know, in our neighbourhood and in our city and in our country, you know, are the majority of people Christians or non-Christians? You know, I think the answer is pretty obvious. Or in Paul's day, when he looked around at his fellow countrymen, the Jews, the same, he could have asked the same question. You know, were the majority, had, had they received the gospel? Had they believed the gospel? Or had they rejected the gospel? And the answer is the majority had rejected it. And so it can make you wonder, if God is so powerful and if his gospel message is the power to salvation, then why is it that so many can hear it and yet remain unchanged? Can we just reject it? Is that some kind of failure on God's behalf? And see, that's the question that Paul uh, deals with in Romans 9 to 11. Uh, we're looking at just the start of it today. But Paul, he starts answering this question by talking about two things. First of all, he tells us, well, he, he talks about unbelief, particularly the unbelief of the Jews, and he thinks about that. And then he asks, well, he answers the question, does this mean God has failed? You know, does, does unbelief, when people hear the gospel, does that mean God is the one who has failed? And so that's going to be our two points this morning. The tragedy of unbelief in verses 1 to 5, and then uh, 
does unbelief mean God has failed in verses 6 to 13? So let's look at those two sections. So first, the tragedy of unbelief. So in verses 1 to 5, and uh, here we get this real insight into how Paul thought about people who had rejected the gospel. And have a look what he says. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Okay, and here it is, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, one of the things that really strikes you, if you're reading through Romans consecutively and you've just read Romans chapter 8 and you get to the end and, and Paul has that, you know, he's celebrating the, the gospel, wow, that, that when you believe in Christ, you are secure in him forever. You know, nothing can separate you from the love of God. So end of chapter 8 is this huge celebration. There's, there's so much joy. Paul's overflowing with joy. Then you get into chapter 9 and he does a massive U-turn. It's like he comes from the top of a mountain crashing to the bottom of a valley in his emotions. And it's, it's almost like the, the joy of that moment of thinking how wonderful it is to be saved by Jesus. The very joy of that is what plunges Paul into this sense of despair as he starts to think about who's missing out. The people who are missing out on this, this glorious salvation. See, the reason Paul has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart is because according to verse 3, so many of his fellow Jews, people he cared deeply about, had rejected the gospel. And, and you know, Paul, he was not some cold-hearted intellectual type. It deeply grieved him that people he loved had rejected Christ. You know, great sorrow, unceasing anguish. It's almost like it was a, you know, like music constantly playing in the background. Unceasing anguish, the thought that some people have rejected Christ. He goes so far as saying in verse 3, if you look at verse 3, he says, I, <clears throat> I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's actually saying he, he kind of wishes he could trade his salvation for theirs. If he could, I mean, he can't, but that's how much he cared for them. You know, he, he'd sooner go to hell than to see them. That, that's how much he cared for them. And the reason is, is because Paul knew what it was like to be saved by Jesus. He knew what it was like to have all of his sins forgiven at the cross of Christ. He knew what it was to be declared righteous by God in Christ. And he knew what it, what it, what it was like to actually have the hope of eternal life in Christ. He knew it all. He was well aware that to have Christ is to share all of the blessings of salvation, but to not have Christ is to be cut off from all of the blessings of salvation because there's no other way to be saved. Salvation is only in Jesus. Condemnation is outside of Christ. And so Paul knew the consequences of rejecting Christ are eternal. And so nothing in the world matters more than being joined to Christ by faith. Nothing is more serious than rejecting the good news of Jesus. And I think we, we here would be pretty hard-hearted if we didn't start to feel some of this pain that Paul was feeling. 
right? Because I know this is a sobering topic to think about, but look, if we really believe the gospel, how can we not feel the same kind of anguish that Paul felt? Because I'm pretty sure that all of us in this room have people in our lives that we deeply care about and they've rejected Jesus. Okay, people that we, you know, our, our family members, good friends, that we, we love, we care for deeply, and yet we know that if they don't turn to Jesus for salvation, that they will be lost forever. Okay, that, that is deeply troubling. It causes a lot of grief, concern. And, you know, remember, if people don't have Christ, what's going to happen? They're going to face the penalty of their sin forever. Okay, how can we not feel sorrow over that? Now, what, what especially troubled Paul, though, in, in his case, was just how privileged the people that he cared for were. You know, these were people who, they weren't like living in the dark. They were people who had all of the privileges of being Jewish people. And Paul lists the, the, some of the privileges that they enjoyed uh, in verses 4 and 5, you know, uh, being Israelites, being adopted, the glory, the covenants, the giving of law, and so on. See, these were people who enjoyed so many privileges and yet seemed to not get what those privileges were pointing them to. Because everything Paul mentions in verses 4 and 5, these were, were particular Old Testament privileges that especially pointed people forward to the Saviour to come. I don't have time to unpack all of that uh, this morning, but the things he mentions, these were the things that especially pointed people to Jesus. These foreshadowed Christ throughout the Old Testament. And so if anyone should have put their trust in Jesus, you know, from a human point of view, the most obvious people who would have accepted Jesus are the Israelites, the Jewish people, because for the last, you know, 5,000 years or whatever it was, 3,000 years, I can't even remember, but for as long as the Bible has been written, it's been saying, there's a saviour to come, <laughs> okay, get ready, keep looking forward. And then he finally comes, and what happens? So many of them didn't see it. They rejected the Messiah. And so no wonder Paul was so upset you know, what a tragedy this is. People who have the most privileges and they completely miss the whole point of them. What a tragedy. No wonder Paul has this unceasing uh, anguish, this great sorrow for them. You know, no wonder he could never look at them with animosity or he could never look at these people with, with indifference. No, no, this was a tragedy. They'd missed out on the, the only source of salvation, which is Christ himself. But we actually have, uh, this is a very helpful passage in some ways. It t does teach us some very important uh, principles about how we think about, you know, saved, being unsaved. Uh, and, and one important principle this teaches us is that having all of the religious privileges is never a substitute for having the Saviour himself. Can I say that again? Having the privileges is never a substitute for the Saviour. See, a faithful Jew in Paul's day was just as lost as any other unbeliever in the world. Okay, Because it doesn't matter if you've got a rich biblical heritage, it doesn't matter if you've got all of these religious practices and you're diligently doing them, if you don't have Christ, 
then all those things mean nothing. Okay, you're still lost. Uh, but it's actually the same for people today, uh, even if you're not Jewish people. Like, for example, you can be someone who, who attends church all your life. Now, you've got all the privileges of, of, of worship. You know, you're hearing the gospel, the preaching, the teaching, uh, the fellowship. See, all of these great privileges, you can have all of those things, but if you don't turn to Christ and, and turn in repentance of sin and put your trust in Jesus... Those privileges will do nothing for you in eternity. Okay, If you don't have Jesus, then you are lost and you will be lost forever. It's the same with growing up in a Christian home. A good boy or a good girl is just as lost as any other unbeliever if you don't have Christ. Okay, The, the privileges are never a substitute for having the Saviour himself. And so it really is a great tragedy when someone can grow up with all of these privileges and yet miss the whole point of them. They're all pointing to the Saviour. He is who you need. And so just to apply this, maybe there are some among us today who, who come to church uh, and you, know, you come because you enjoy the friendships, you enjoy the sense of community, uh, you, you like what we stand for, or something like that, which is, it's great. I mean, that's wonderful you're coming. I encourage you to definitely keep coming. But if your time here results in you never putting your faith in Jesus, then that would be a horrible tragedy. Okay, that will be an eternal tragedy because there's nothing in the world that matters more than you coming to Christ personal faith in Jesus. There's nothing that matters more than that. But what about for those who, uh, what about for those of us who have put our faith in Christ? What are these verses saying to us today? Well, I think Paul's attitude that we see expressed here, I think that's a bit of a reality check for us. Because we can be, we can fall into just this, this indifference toward the lost. You know, the fact that so many people are heading towards hell. How can that not cause deep concern? How can we not be troubled by that? Or even worse, what if there's some of us here today who, who have like a superior attitude towards unbelievers or, or a, a critical attitude or even an angry attitude towards unbelievers? Do you see how out of place that is when you look at what Paul, what does Paul say? Great sorrow unceasing anguish. See, there's no superiority, there's no criticisms, there's no anger, because this is actually what the gospel does to us. When we know that Christ loved us while we were lost, see, that has to change us, that has to give us a tender heart toward those who are lost. You know, our fellow sinners who are still lost, how can we ever despise them? How can we ever look down on them? Surely what should fill our hearts is, is sorrow. And, and, and really, if we have no concern about the eternal destinies of the lost, then we do actually do it. We need to have a reality check. Have we actually understood the gospel ourselves? Because according to these verses, unbelief is a tragedy. It's the greatest tragedy. And so that's the first point, the tragedy of unbelief. But second, 
What does unbelief say about God? Have you ever wondered that? You know, the gospel, the power of salvation, and yet so many people reject it. What does that say about God? Does that call into question his power? Does it call into question his faithfulness? See, is unbelief, is that an indication of God's failure? Well, Paul answers that question in the rest of the passage, in verses 6 to 13. And in some ways, this was a bigger question for Paul himself, because you know, when he was looking at unbelief, he was especially thinking about his fellow Jews. And uh, his fellow Jews, well, you know, that, that probably does call into question more whether God had failed, because weren't the Jews God's own people? Okay, didn't God make a promise to Abraham that Abraham and all of his descendants would be God's people forever? Wasn't that the promise? And so has God, you know, has he failed to keep his word? Is that what's going on? So that's what Paul's dealing with here. And notice how he gives the answer straight up. He just says uh, in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why has God's word not failed? Well, he says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So that, that's the key principle. <clears throat> Notice how Paul, he makes that little distinction between, uh, you know, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So he's saying there's an Israel within Israel. There's a true Israel, so to speak. And then there's the rest of Israel. Uh, a saved Israel within the broader community or the general population of Israel. That's a, a distinction that's often talked about in the Bible, even in the Old Testament, by the way, uh, with the remnant. But where does Paul get this idea of an Israel within Israel? And he gets it from the scriptures. And that's what he does. He, the rest of the passage, he just gives us two examples of uh, this idea of an Israel within Israel. And the first example in verses 7 to 9 uh, is the children of Abraham. So uh, verse 7 says, uh, not all children of Abraham, sorry, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So remember at one point in Abraham's life, he had two sons. I mean, he had some more later on at the end, but um, at one point he had these two sons, Ishmael, who was born to um, uh, Sarah's uh, slave named Hagar, and then Isaac, who was born to um, Abraham's wife, Sarah. And, uh, you know, when you read that passage, um, clearly Isaac was the one who belonged to God, whereas Ishmael didn't. Even though both of them were Abraham's descendants, only one actually belonged to God. Uh, now, the second example Paul points to is the example of one generation later with Isaac's children. So verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So here we see the same distinction. Both Jacob and Esau, they were physical descendants, and yet only one belonged to God. So he's, right from the beginning, there's this idea of an Israel within Israel. 
But this time, notice what Paul does to, to explain what's going on. Notice how he takes us much deeper into God's role, God's role into uh, or when it comes to who is saved and who isn't saved. And notice how Paul explains it. You know, why is it that Jacob was saved and Esau wasn't? What's Paul's answer? God's purpose of election. You know, the God's purpose of election might continue. So it's telling us that Jacob was a believer and Esau was not a believer. And the ultimate reason why is because God elected Jacob and uh, not Esau. Uh, that's actually what verse 13 uh, means. Sometimes people stumble over verse 13. And uh, there's a lot of funny um, ideas trying to explain it. But Jacob I loved and Esau I had it. It just means God chose Jacob but not Esau. <clears throat> and so here's Paul's answer. Why is it that some people believe the gospel and others reject it? The ultimate reason is because of God's election. Now, I know that raises a whole lot of questions in our mind. You know, how does that work? Now, does that mean that the, we're all robots just doing what's been pre-programmed? Well, let's, let's think about it a little bit. Let's first of all ask the deeper question. The, the, the real issue when it comes to how does God elect has to be on what basis does God elect people? You know, why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? What, what was his reasoning for that? Well, let's, let's follow what Paul says here and try to work out on what basis does God elect people. So in verse 10, uh, did God elect Jacob and not Esau because, you know, the, he came from the right family or the right mother in this case? <laughs> because you could potentially argue that if you're looking at Isaac and Ishmael. Right, because Ishmael was, was not born within the uh, covenant marriage. There was this, uh, you know, different way of doing things. And so you could, you could imagine, well, the reason God chose um, Isaac and not Ishmael was because, you know, everything was legit with Isaac, but not so much with Ishmael. Um, but then that doesn't work with Jacob and Esau, because same parents. In fact, conceived at the same time that these two boys were twins. And so God's choice over, you know, one over the other wasn't determined by which family they came from or, or the way that they were brought up, because all of that was the same. Uh, but what about maybe God's choice of which boy he wanted to save was based on something in the boys themselves? But then what happens? Verse 11 rules that out. Because notice what Paul says in verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, See, God chose Jacob to be saved before he was born, before he'd done anything, which means it can't be, God didn't base his choice on their performance. And of course, someone will say, no, 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 you're not, you're not understanding. God can see into the future. He can see how they would turn out. And so he looked into the future to see which one, you know, either lived a good life or, or which one actually believed in him. And he chose them on that basis. But Paul actually rules that out as well in the rest of verse 11. Because in the rest of verse 11, he says, uh, in order that God's purpose in election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And see, that, that last phrase, not because of works, but because of him who calls, 
Paul's making a distinction between what we do, which is works, and what God does, which is God calls. And so what's the ultimate basis for God's choosing one and not the other? It's got nothing to do with what we do. Everything with what God does. See, Paul, he's going out of his way to stress that God's election of who he saves, it actually has nothing to do with any quality within the one he saves. You know, nothing that they've done or nothing that they will do. See, God's choice of Jacob and his passing over of Esau, it had nothing to do with anything God saw in them or foresaw in them. And that's really the heart, the very heart of what God's election is actually on about. See, God elects people to salvation not based on anything that he sees in the one he elects. You know, not their good works, uh, not their responses, not their decisions, not their faith. Now, that doesn't mean that God has no reason for electing people. It's not like just, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, mo sort of thing or, or get out the, um, you know, that thing you see on TV on ads with the, the balls in the machine and they pop out and they look at it, you know, number this. That's, that's not how it was. Now, God has his reasons. Uh, he tells us um, that he elects in love. Uh, so God has his reasons, but whatever those reasons are, are based in God, not based in the, the actual ones that he um, chooses. And it's actually very important to understand that. Okay, the reason why I'm going out of my way to um, point that out is because this is a gospel issue. Because this is, this is helping us to see what it means that God saves by grace, not by works. In fact, we can apply this to ourselves. Uh, for instance, if, if you are a believer and not an unbeliever, what is the ultimate reason that that's the case? Okay, what is the ultimate reason that you're a believer and not an unbeliever? The ultimate reason. If, if your ultimate reason is something that you did or something that originated from you, uh, then who gets the final credit for your salvation? You do. I mean, obviously, Jesus gets a bigger share of credit, but if at the end of the day, you know, the difference between ending up in heaven or not is something that comes from us, then that means that we've got something to boast in. Now, we can say, you know, oh, I did it. But early in Romans, Paul said the gospel excludes all boasting. See, so it can't be something we do. It has to be something that God does. And this is the reason why the Bible talks about election so much. You know, some of us wish it didn't because it's too complicated and it's too confusing. But the reason the Bible talks about God electing and, and predestination and all of that, it's just to get across to us the gospel, that God saves us not based on what we do, but on his mercy. Uh, and to get that across in the clearest way, he tells us that even our decision to believe in him is actually, well, it's not the cause of God's decision to save us. It's the other way around. Uh, God's decision to save us is actually the cause of our decision to believe, which is just, you know, it's incredible. 
I mean, obviously it doesn't feel like that in experience because we look at everything from our own perspective. Uh, but what does the Bible do? The Bible gives us God's perspective on salvation. And when we see it from his perspective, we see that there's actually an eternal plan. It goes all the way back before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 1 tells us. And we realize actually salvation is all of God's work from beginning to end, which means who gets all the credit? God. Okay? Who are we going to be praising on that final day when we're all, you know, all God's people in, in, in heaven? We're going to be praising him. Actually, that's why we praise him now. You know, we don't gather at church and go, good on you, God, and good on you, me. <laughs> no, no, it's all God. God has done it all. And, and I actually, I know from experience that, that when, when the election's hard, it takes time to, to think through. It's really good to, to chat with, um, you know, amongst one another and work it all out. But when, when, it, when it finally dawns that, hang on, this is about grace, this is, this is about showing us that we're saved with nothing to do with us, all of God, then it actually becomes a wonderful treasure. It becomes something that you, you, you really do treasure. Wow, God chose me. I mean, that's just the most amazing thought. It deeply humbles you, but it also deeply reassures you because it means that you are loved from all of eternity and nothing can change that. Okay, it's a wonderful, wonderful truth. Now, if we just return to the original question, though, remember, what's the original question? Did the unbelief of so many Israelites in Paul's day, did that mean that God had failed? And the answer is a clear no. God hasn't failed. Why? Because God has always had his elect, and none of his elect missed out on salvation. None of them. God saved everyone he chose to save. And it's the same today. You know, we, we might look out on the world with real discouragement, thinking, you know, what's going on? If God's so powerful, why isn't he saving more people? Or if the gospel is the power of salvation, how come, you know, we can, we can preach it, we can share it with people, and it doesn't seem to do anything? What's going on? Is God failing? No, God's not failing. He has. He's saving exactly who he has chosen to save. You know, we don't have, we don't have to stress out. God's not stressing out. God's not in heaven going, you know, wow, this is just driving me nuts. I'm trying to get people to believe in me, but they just won't. It's not like that at all. God is saving exactly who he has chosen to save. That's what it means that he is sovereign. And so just to finish up, I realise this brief mention of election, um, you know, probably raises more questions than it solves and uh, probably a few objections as well. Uh, well, Paul knows that. And for the rest of chapter 9, what does he do? He deals with all of the objections that people generally raise to the um, doctrine of election. And so God willing, we'll look at that next week. But just to finish up today, I just want to draw out one implication of this passage as a whole. And you see, sometimes people assume that if you believe that God elects people to salvation and passes over others, Sometimes people think that that will make you indifferent to the lost. You know, that that will kill any urge of evangelism because we'll go, oh, well, if God has elected them, they'll get there one way or another, so we don't have to worry about them anymore. But that's not what you see in this passage because Paul clearly believed that God elects people to salvation 
And Paul clearly had concern for the lost. Okay, there, there, is, there has been no one with more passion for evangelism than the Apostle Paul. And yet he believed in election. So believing in election doesn't, doesn't kill your uh, desire to reach people with the gospel. It actually increases it because you realize that if God has his elect and they could be anyone, we don't know who they are, well, then it really could be anyone. You know, people that we might have ridden off in our minds thinking there's no way they could be saved. Well, you don't know that because what if God has elected them? Okay, we should be thinking, hey, this is going to work. <laughs> if we preach the gospel and God has his elect, then they will come to salvation. So that actually increases our passion for evangelism. And so therefore we go out to all people with the good news, confident that those whom God has chosen will come to salvation. And so election, it's not an excuse for unbelief. It's not an excuse to ignore the lost. See, God's sovereignty and our responsibility, they work together. We, we might not be able to realise how that works out, but it's what God tells us in his word. And we can trust him. Why? Because he's God and because he's sovereign. <clears throat> well, let's, um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> Lord, we just thank you that salvation really is uh, your, your work from beginning to end, uh, 100% your doing and 0% our doing. And we thank you, Father, for that because we know that if it was based on anything in us, even our decision, that there would always be that uncertainty that maybe, maybe we haven't done our part. But we thank you that we don't have to worry about that, Lord, because we see here that salvation is of the Lord uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, if, if we struggle with this to, uh, to not just leave that aside, but to keep looking into it, to keep thinking it through and to keep looking at your word and, and thinking about how, how, how you teach us this, this truth. Uh, and we pray, Lord, that you would give us uh, discernment and give us uh, the right attitude as we think about it too. But Lord, we pray that uh, whatever uh, understanding we have, that, that our, our aim will be your glory and to, to uphold the gospel of grace. Father, we pray for those uh, who are lost. And Lord, we pray that, that we would <clears throat> yeah, have this same attitude that Paul has, that we would not see that as, as a matter of indifference, but a matter of great urgency, uh, that we would not be content to have family members just ignorant of the truth of the gospel, but may we uh, pray for them frequently. May we reach out to them, Lord. May you give us a real heart uh, for them. And, Lord, we pray that, that you would save them, that they would be among your elect. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.